Welcome to the Wizard of Whiskey Podcast, the podcast dedicated to the hedonist lifestyle. I'm Justin Corey. This episode was recorded quite a while ago with the crew of Damiani Wine Cellars. They are an incredibly fun bunch. I managed to taste through <clears throat> their sparkling wines, their Pinot Noirs, their Rieslings, and eventually, in episode 3, their Cabernet Francs. Located in the Finger Lakes, they... And when I say they, because I interviewed half a dozen of them, make exceptional wines. Enjoy. All right. So my name is Glenn Allen. I'm the business manager and co-owner of Damiani Wine Cellars. With Bell for about seven years, they founded it. I joined actually to help them out a little bit of the business. And then we kind of hit it off, and we joined his partner, which I did. Get into the business for a while, um, but I didn't know how to make wine or grow grapes. And somehow, the three of us, best winemaker, best grower in the region, Okay. Phil, maybe you go next. Hey, Phil Davis here. Um, so, grew up in Hector, where our winery is founded. Have uh, have some land, vineyards. Lou and I started started the winery, and uh, I guess we actually went on the books in '04, uh, making wine and planting vineyards, starting around '97. Um, my role in the winery is still in in the vineyards. And, um, you know, I, I need to stand on earth, not cement. So that's what they let me do. Nice. Uh, Phil Harris, uh, the other Phil here, no relation, at least not by blood. Um, I'm the head winemaker. I started started uh, six years ago uh, as Lou's assistant. Uh, had one harvest under my belt at that point, basically scrubbing out tanks. So guys were kind enough to take me on and teach me how to make wine. Um, I was uh, halfway out the door to go to UC Davis, uh, go to winemaking about a week before I was going to leave. And six years later, I'm, yeah, I've been the head winemaker for, I guess, four years at this point. Um, and Learned on the job, but this is a really good place to come up in uh, the Finger Lakes because it's a really good community where lots of people are just really willing to help, and so we all learn together. You went to Hector Davis instead. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers to that. Yeah. (laughs) My name is Michael Cimino. I'm a certified sommelier with the Sommelier Society of America. And um, I've only been with Damiani Wine Cellars for about a little more than a year now. Um, but I've been traveling the Finger Lakes Trail for almost 20 years. And um, unbeknownst to myself until recently, I actually met Lou and Phil in 2007. But, of course, we were all drinking at the time, so we <laughs> forgot. <laughs> <laughs> but um, bringing... Uh, 
New York State wines back to New York City, Westchester County and Bergen County, New Jersey was my forte for a long time and I always dreamed of uh, moving up here and when I did and uh, re-met Lou and Phil and Glenn, I came aboard and uh, now I'm running the tasting room. That's everybody here. Okay, excellent, excellent. Sorry, I just spilled uh, sparkling wine all over myself. Um, I was trying to do it on the on the down low to avoid uh, a giant boom in the middle of your speech. Sorry about that, Michael. Nope. Um, You're supposed to spill it on the beautiful women. If there were any here, believe me, that would that would be an option. Um, <clears throat> so okay. Um, a little history about uh, about the winery. Um, who wants to go? I'll go. This is Phil Davis here. Uh, so Lou and I have known each other since uh, childhood, actually. And, um, oh, gosh, probably about 1996, um, he came to me um, and talked about planting vineyards, of which he knew nothing. So I got on board with that and helped him plant his vineyard, uh, switched out some of my vineyards to some of the vinifer grapes that we're currently growing. Um, we made a barrel or two of wine that year, a couple more barrels the next year, and it evolved to the point where, like in 2003, I believe it was, we had about 1,400 cases of wine in the barn and started talking about maybe we should get a license. Um, and uh, which, which wasn't an easy, you know, it, just, it wasn't just a given because we had pretty good black market going on at the time. But I guess we won't say that out loud. Um, so then we... uh don't listen to this. So then we, uh, we did go ahead and get a license and uh, and started up really not knowing anything about the wine business except that we were making really nice, palatable wines. I love to grow grapes, and uh, our grand business plan was to plant grapes that made the kind of wine we like to drink. So consequently, we planted uh, Merlot, Cap Franc, Pinot Noir, later on some uh, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, some Riesling, and uh, it's just evolved from that. You know, each year it gets a little bit more complex and a little more uh, interesting. And I'll leave it at that. Great. Okay. Um, all right. So let's jump in uh, and drink some wine. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. We're well right. ready. We're, we're catching up now for sure. Oh, good, good, good. Um, so we have, um, I guess, your, your 2010 uh, sparkling wine. Um, if this is your, your brute label? Yes. It, Can you tell me a little bit about it? Well, it's uh, only got two grams of sugar added at dosage, so te technically it's... Uh, we could call it, I think, a, a natural at that point. Um, it's 55% Pinot Noir and 45% Pinot, I'm, I'm sorry, 45% Chardonnay. And we actually did our dosage with uh, 
Pinot Meunier that we harvested several years later. We're now adding Pinot Meunier to our sparkling, but not a widely planted grape out here. Um, we do it in the traditional method, uh, at least 30 months on the leaves, and then disgorged and dosaged by hand. Um, Yeah. From from the business perspective, I'll just chime in here because this is one of my pet peeves. We never make any money on cane. It's a labor of love. It's very labor intensive. It's extremely expensive to make. And unfortunately or fortunately, we drink about half of our production. So we've never really come out of hell. But it is one of the strengths of the Finger Lake sparkling wine. We like sparkling so much here that we actually decided, in addition to the small batch, um, you know, champagne that we make that we're now drinking, so we wanted to emulate a Prosecco-style sparkling, and that's the second part of the bogey. So in terms of winemaking, it's uh, pressed whole cluster uh, very lightly and this is Phil Harris, by the way. Um, plus, pressed whole cluster, um, and I sit there with a pH meter and wait to see the pH start shifting, and as soon as the pH <laughs> starts shifting up, that's when we stop pressing it for sparkling, and it starts becoming bollicini at that point. Um, it's, you know, it's really important to keep the, the delicacy and the acidity to only do the lightest pressing. Um, to make that really crisp style of Chardonnay that we're going for. Um, and then uh, the, the two different components are fermented separately and then um, blended together. So we, we don't have a set recipe for how much Pinot, how much Chardonnay. We figure that out by blending trials. But over the years, we've been leaning more and more towards Pinot Noir, our more recent vintages uh, have gone, you know, this one's 55% Pinot. They're now up to almost 80% Pinot. Wow. Um, are a lot of people in the Finger Lakes doing vintage sparkling? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I mean, there's honestly not that many people who do traditional method sparkling up here. I mean, maybe, maybe a dozen um, that I can think of off the top of my head, but... Um, yeah, I mean, financially, it doesn't work. You know, basically, given the uh, American palate in general, um, it's it's we literally pour one to sell one, so that doesn't work. We're just paying attention to, uh, on the sparkling side, it's one of our indulgences. We, we love to drink sparkling, so we make really nice sparkling for ourselves. Everything's uh, left a uh, minimum of three years on lease, and... Um, you know, we 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 work we work hard at this wine, and because we know we're going to drink it. <laughs> and like like Glenn said, I mean, it is the most labor intensive because you have to have hands laid on each bottle. How many times? Let's say at we have to bottle it by hand because our bottling line doesn't have a crown capper. Then we have to um, riddle. We got to riddle by hand and then it needs to be disgorged by hand, and then it needs to be labeled by hand because you can't label a freshly disgorged bottle because it's soaking wet and ice cold. <laughs> so these are all 
and, and it uses the most expensive glass, the most expensive cork, the most expensive label. <laughs> Everything about it is as expensive as we can possibly make it, just to make sure we don't make any money. <laughs> and actually, the Pinot in this in this particular vintage came from a, a vineyard that was um, planted. Oh gosh, it was it's actually a field grafting onto an old Ives vineyard, um, and the uh, the the stock for the Pinot Noir is a is a Champagne clone stock. So anyway. Okay, um, I, I just have a question about the winemaking on this. Um, you, how often are you guys doing batonnage? Oh, not very often. Um, it's mostly uh, pick up the pallet of sparkling wine and drive it around our bumpy driveway. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. I think that's something I I do want to get more into this year. Um, previously, it just hasn't been practical because it takes so much space to store it in cases on its side. Uh, you can only fit 27 cases on a pallet when you do 200 cases that ends up being a lot of room so we we store it off site generally but uh, in the past couple of years we've started building our own wooden boxes so we can stack the bottles on top of each other without boxes and just starting to realize it would really help to do some batonage to develop that mouthfeel so with this vintage next to no batonage really just aged on still leaves basically um, in the future, I'm planning on doing that, and you know, a lot of a lot of this is. I'm still new to this. I'm still learning the tricks, even though I've, you know, been here six years. That means I've made sparkling wine six times. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, well done on this one. Um, the first thing I thought was it is incredibly silty. Uh, there's just a lot of clay in there, which just brings me back to. Um, you know, grower champagne. Um, you get a little bit of that biscuit quality, and and the rest is just crisp and a little bit of fruit. But it's it's refreshing. And hell, I went to brunch the other day. I wish I'd brought this with. Um, well, thank you. So. <laughs> so, uh, the Bollicini. Mm-hmm. Um. 2013. Oh, nice. Uh, let's talk about that one. Well, this started um, really because we felt like we were wasting half of our uh, half of our juice from making the sparkling wine. Because, um, like I said, we're we're pretty particular about when we make our cuts during the press process. So you typically, out of vinifera grapes, get 155 gallons per ton. But with sparkling wine, it's more like 100 gallons per ton, which means you got 50 gallons per ton that needs to go somewhere. Um, so we did some experimenting a couple years and uh, decided to start using Cayuga as a base wine. And then after doing some uh, doing some fining treatment on the uh, higher press portion of our sparkling wine, basically to to remove some of those more harsh tannins and uh, make it more approachable. 
at blended in with a nice crisp um, Cayuga became the Bollicini. And it's uh, it's been the response to Bollicini has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, the one thing we see is we don't make enough of it every single year, and we've been increasing every year. So at the moment, it looks like we're going to run out before we even get to the fall, which means better get my ass in gear to get the 14 ready. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it is done in more of a Prosecco style. It is bottle fermented, but it's not traditional method. Um, might ask what that means. Uh, we contract with a large winery down here that has all the equipment we need to do the transfer method of bottle fermentation which means it's bottle fermented just like traditional method you know yeast sugar into the base wine and then um, capped with the crown cap and then aged in, in the case of bollicini between six and twelve months and then the disgorging process is where it gets different um, it goes through a machine which manually, I'm sorry, manually, goes through a machine which automatically takes off the caps and sucks the wine out under pressure and then is filtered through a pressurized filter into a pressurized beer tank. So even though it's bottle fermented, it's then all the bottles are then removed and um, filtered and homogenized together. So you actually get a more consistent product, less bottle variation. It then goes from the pressurized beer tank to new bottles. So it's rebottled in different bottles. And the original bottles, which were used for tirage, are then sanitized and reused. So this place has been using the same tirage bottles since the 70s. So it's not like we're being incredibly wasteful, as this method might sound. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's kind of a nice combination of efficiency and still getting the bottle fermentation that we, we want. And then we finish it uh, in a more off-dry fashion than the uh, the Brute. So I believe this one's, yeah, a little over 1.8% residual sugar, or 18 grams. So um, definitely a more off-dry style, but that's what we were going for. Our goal was in the beginning to create a Prosecco-style wine, and that may or may not be accurate, but that's what we went into it with. So Bollicini means tiny bubbles in Italian. We actually had a, a naming contest when we were developing this. We just put the question out to all of our fans, letting them know we're developing this Prosecco-style uh, sparkling. And the one who submitted Bollicini won, and we gave him a case of wine. So. Very cool. Oh, we came up with Bollicini. Fan, fan inspired. I'm not sure we ever plugged it into Google Translate. Hopefully, it really does mean tiny bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> you, you never know. I mean, it could mean something very, very bad in Italian. Who knows? There's a story to this, too, which is at the time we were also seasoned sponsors of our local roller derby team, um, the Suffragettes out of Ithaca. And the sponsorship took the form of our sparkling wine. They were all big fans of it, and their coach's name, who was the biggest fan of all, his his name was Tiny Bubbles. 
And this guy's like 6'6", 250 pounds, wonderful guy. But to call him tiny, tiny bubbles is well, was consistent with the whole roller derby team called the Suffragettes. Um, right. So when we realized that connection, Bollicini just seemed like the perfect fit. And that's also how we came up with the color of the label, which is sort of a, a hot pink, reddish color, which is their, their jersey team color. Ah, okay. Very cool. Very cool. Um, <clears throat> so, Glenn, when we first talked, you were super excited to do this horizontal with the Pinot Noirs, all 2012, um, all different vineyards. Yeah, so the Pinot Noir here is extremely expressive of the soil, the terroir. And so in certain years, we're able to bottle separately the different vineyards that we source from. Um, 2012 was a, one of the best years on record for reds. And as a result, we were able to bottle four Pinot Noirs. Um, just to give you an idea, our default is to make one. In 2009, we made one Pinot Noir. Certain years, we'll make two, maybe three. But in 2012, we made four, um, two reserves, and two single vineyard bottlings. Uh, so, yeah, that's part of our program here is we are champions of the unusual, the distinctive. So wherever possible, we like to celebrate those little differences that we're tasting in the cellar. And each year we taste through the barrels and we decide, are we going to blend these all together? Or are there distinct differences? And is the quality so great that we really can bottle these separately? So I guess we'll taste through these now and um, see what you think. All right. Uh, where should we start? Uh, well, why don't we start with the 2012 Davis Vineyard Upper Block. That's that's what I figured. So that's what I poured. Or that's that's what I'm pouring in my glass now. Um, and, uh, wow. I'll we'll make the rounds too. Every every year we really just want to blend all the reds together and all the whites together and have two wines. Because that because <laughs> that would make that would make life much much easier. That's a wine yes. maker speaking. But, but every every but, year we end up seeing that they just don't, you know. Certain things don't blend, certain things shouldn't blend, and we really like, especially, you know, with this flight that we're doing, we really like to celebrate the differences that we see amongst these vineyards, and uh, Pinot Noir is one that just is is so, diff it's so subtle, and it's so um, different from year to year, and from vineyard site to vineyard site, that it's really a lot of fun to celebrate those differences. And uh, so sometimes they just, the wine demands to be kept separate and we have to oblige. 2012 from a grower's perspective, um, was, since I've been growing vinifera grapes, uh, probably the most uh, perfect growing season that I've encountered. Um, 
it was a it was a hot summer with very timely rain, so we didn't have to worry about drought stress. Um, we the vineyards on my farm, the Davis vineyards that you're tasting, um, they're grown on the, this gravelly soil, so obviously the drainage is rapid. Um, so um, can have drought stress if you don't have timely rains. 2012 we did, and we had plenty of heat, and the, the numbers when we harvested these grapes were beautiful. Um, so I'm really glad that they separated out the vineyards. The upper vineyard that we're tasting right now is actually three different Dijon clones. It's a uh, 6, 7, 777, and 114 for people that are into that kind of stuff. Um, and Pinot, Pinot, when Lou and I started this vineyard, we're both uh, like Pinot hounds. And because I think Pinot is probably the most feminine of the red wines that we make, and appreciation for the femininity leads us towards this Pinot Noir bent. And um, and actually, I mean, that's why we started a wine. It's all about the women, right? Um, and I think 2012 was a good expression across the board of that the Finger Lakes can express through these wines. Um, I think I think you really want to uh, spend a lot of time with your nose in these glasses and savor the elegance and subtlety that is to be had in these in these liquids. Roll them around in your mouth and appreciate the femininity. I like that analogy. That's that's nice. Um, are these uh, are these vineyards particularly? Are they particularly chalky? I'm sorry. Are they are they particularly chalky and silty? Silty? Did you say? S silty. Oh. Uh, oh. Uh, mostly what? Howard Gravel, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a gravel. I think you're picking up on. Uh, I think you're picking up on the, on the earthiness of the clones, the way they express themselves, and the uh, this, this this gravel soil has got a. Uh, it's basically a granite-based gravel. I think you're picking up on a lot of a lot of minerality here, but it's a granite-based minerality as opposed to, say, a slate or or clay-based. When um, I don't know, do we have a do we have a uh, sunrise here? Yep. Yeah. So when we get to the sunrise, they're they're a little more uh, a little more loamy and clay. Um, so when we get to that, you may pick up that but I think what you're picking up more here is is the the minerality of granite based gravel um, we also um, as Phil mentioned being Pinot freaks um, it's the one red wine that religiously is unfined and unfiltered um, you know such a delicate animal the less processing you can do, the more of those natural 
flavors you're going to preserve that that you know even moving it from tank to tank can be damaging so we try and you know really just be as hands off as possible while protecting it as much as possible okay well uh well, let's start uh, tasting the uh, sunrise vineyard So the nice thing about doing these back to back, we didn't really do this by design, but it turns out there is kind of a nice expression of terroir between these two. We have the same wine making regime, same winemaker barrel regime, and in the fields, in the here's essentially the same clonal diversity. So the only real difference between these two is, in fact, terroir. And I think you'll, you'll notice there is quite a interesting difference. One of the things I was saying earlier, we love that difference and love expressing it. We have the choice of bringing these together as one wine, but we choose, possible, to model them separate. You can taste those differences. <coughs> Having tasted them both, I can I can sincerely appreciate you guys not blending them because in the first one, the Davis Vineyard, I got rose petal, I got mint, I got this kind of soft and smooth, uh, you know, minerality to it. Um, with the uh, Sunrise Hill, I'm getting kind of dried cherry on the nose. Pretty classic. It's interesting you yeah. you mentioned the mint in the uh, in the in the Davis uh, upper block there. They're actually it's it's like it's literally it's like a one acre block of Pinot Noir, and probably a quarter of an acre of that has mint throughout it. And it's very interesting how I mean you're not the first one I've heard speak about the mint aspect of the wine from that vineyard. And, you know, it's just a wild mint that obviously I haven't tried to control or contain. I, I, I love it. I, I think that it gives it a lot of complexity. Yeah, yeah. Um, cool, isn't it? How, how many years of uh, mowing that mint and having that mint go into the soil? Oh, it spreads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mint, mint yeah. you can't get rid of them, yeah. But the vines are obviously uptaking some of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um well done. Um, so should we do the Davis uh, Reserve or the... Uh... Yeah, let's go Davis Reserve. Okay. All right. So the reason we separate the two uh, vineyards of the Davis fruit is, one, the location on the slope, um, the... Upper block is obviously above, and the lower block is below. Um, the lower block is all on 115, which is not in the mix in any significant way in the upper block. The upper block, like Phil said, is 667, 777, and 114. Um, 115, making up 100% of the lower block, is it actually is less fruit forward. It's more, it, it's less like 
tasting cherries and more like sucking on cherry pits. Now it has this woody, you know, almost cherry wood or um, almost like a, you know, a, a more a more rough texture to it. You know, it's got it's got structure and body that the other clones don't have, um, and oftentimes. You know, in, in certain years, we'll blend the upper block and the lower block together. I mean, they're separated by less than 200 yards. But it's at the bottom of the hill where the slope levels out a little. Um, and honestly, it's, it, it really is based on uh, the clonal difference, I think. But, you know, There's something about that, that earthy side to the 115 Dijon clone that we, every year, we're like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. It's certain, um, makes your eyes go wide when you taste it kind of taste to us. And um, so it's, it's been one of our consistent sources for the reserve wines, the reserve, uh, you know, Um, I, I like this wine for, for many reasons, but, um, when you, when you talk about the absolute terroir driven, um, you know, Pinot Noirs, I, I'm shocked that I got a ton of bacon fat in this, um, from, from the clone, you know, really plump, really juicy, um, and I mean, amazingly enough, these are three Pinot Noirs, same year. I'm assuming no more than a couple of miles apart, if that. Well, the two Pinots um, are a couple hundred yards apart, and uh, less than that. I mean, the, yeah. the, the Davis Upper is separated by uh, seven rows, a half an acre of Sauvignon Blanc. So literally, you're talking same soils. Um, same agriculture, same sun exposure, et cetera, et cetera. You, that's, you taste, that's awesome. You're tasting clonal differences there. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I I would put these four Pinots. I haven't tasted the fourth one yet, but I would put these in a blind tasting versus California, Oregon, um, and uh, Burgundy any day. And showcase just the the awesomeness of, of these four these four pinos. So well it's been kind of a fun thing to do here at the tasting room for customers coming in. We can pour these three you just tasted in sequence because it's a it's a wonderful way to understand the difference between terroir and clonal influence and flavor. Yeah. Yeah. And we kinda I feel like we went past the Sunrise Hill a little fast, um, that's, you know, it's a vineyard we work with closely. It's not one of ours, but um, it's actually the same clones that are in the two Davis Pinots. It's 667, 777, and 115. Um, the only thing missing is that little bit of 114 in your upper block, but that's pretty that's pretty minor. Not much. Yeah, so you're... There's a, a fun thing with the two Davis wines. You're tasting 115 versus 667 and 777, and then in Sunrise Hill, you're tasting all three of them, but from a completely different soil type. 
Yep. It gives credence to both the terroir and colonial arguments. Yep. And they're all good. And they're all good. <laughs> I, well, and the funny thing is we're in pursuit of yet another clone. We're, we're planting more Pinot, more, more of the 115 Dijon clone, of course, because we love that. But we're also looking for a Pomard clone to further add to the complexity in our new vineyard, which won't come online for another three to five years. It takes that long before new vines really start producing anything to to use. But, well, we all but stay tuned. Yeah, it'll be fun seeing how the new the new uh, vineyard expresses itself. And I and I actually think. Um, when you start talking about uh, comparing to Burgundy, comparing to whomever, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer that uh, people are obsessed by uh, holding up standards of other people. I think people need to uh, focus on these wines as Finger Lakes wines. Um, I'm really not that enamored of comparing to Burgundy or areas of California, it, it, it really is, to me, it's, it's irrelevant. Uh, I'm, I, I live in the Finger Lakes. I grow grapes in the Finger Lakes, and I make wine in the Finger Lakes. And I think these are expressions of the Finger Lakes, and I think that's what I would love to have people uh, appreciate and um, focus on, and comparisons be damned in my world. I, I get that. I do. Unfortunately, in my world, that's all we can do. Um, yeah, well. So. Um, I understand. I understand. But, you know, you live in your world, I live in mine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and we're all drinking wine on a Friday afternoon. So That's great, isn't it? Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, you're tasting the Finger Lakes right now. You know, yeah. how how different is this Pinot from, you know, God, we got four Pinots that are markedly different. Yeah. yeah. Each other, all from this area. And then, yeah, so it's really, it really is the Finger Lakes that is making these wines. I think, I think it's interesting that our host picked up on the mint on the, yeah, upper, great, on the upper block. Yeah. Is, is the mint extending down naturally into the lower block as no. well? Oh, it's just yeah. kind of an animal. So far, anyway. Very so far, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I have mint growing in my backyard, too. Wild. And it grows. Yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah. Is the mint where that giant brown bee's nest is? No. Okay. Oh, <laughs> just showed up last week. So we've already started pouring out the, um, the Damiani Pinot Reserve. I think this is the first year we've made a Damiani designated reserve. Mm -hmm. It's a we get very little, very very little, very small block. We're lucky if we get one to two barrels of wine out of this. Um, in twelve, we got three barrels, and we decided it was enough for a separate bottling because it was it was different enough. Again, we wanted to celebrate the difference. And I, okay. I want to emphasize that we don't make these decisions lightly or quickly or without lots of hemming and hawing and, and argument. Drinking. Yeah, lots of drinking, lots of arguing. <laughs> and, you know, we all of all four of these wines were at one point blended together in the lab in 30 different 
proportions, and this is where we finally decided we had to go with it. Even though a little bit of one of them and the other changed it, we really felt like it changed it too much, and we were losing something. You know, we would you gain something to lose something, and really we just this is where we ended because we wanted to preserve the beauty that we found in each of these. Yeah. Not complicate things, you know. You can uh, you can out wine make yourself sometimes. And more more is not always better. Sometimes doing doing less is better. But you got to know when that's the right thing to do, and that's kind of the tricky part. Nice. All right. This is. So these last two, what you want to mention the scores? These last two ones, Scott. The scores? Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I no, this is uh lose yep. um I don't know what funnel or that is vendor to be honest. Oh I am just talking about the wine enthusiast scores. Oh. Meh. Yeah. Scores we got some nice scores on these wines. Right. <laughs> Do you know what the clone mix is here? I have no idea. And lose. Yeah, Justin I oh I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, there's 667, there's 777, there's 23, which is a really obscure one. Um, and I think there's one more. I don't know the whole clonal mix over at this farm. But it, it, from an agricultural standpoint, it's interesting because um, this vineyard, you know, I always talk about stress in a vineyard making these uh, grapes more expressive. And this vineyard is about as stress as you can possibly get. And... Uh, <laughs> I mean, the vines are gnarly, uh, weedy. I mean, I, I grow weeds in my vineyard. I'm not afraid to grow weeds, but this vineyard is really weedy. And um, and the vines are just like, oh, my God, get these grapes off me so I can survive and, uh, <laughs> and make beautiful wines, beautiful wines. I think, uh, I mean, around here anyway, and the photographs you see in so many wine publications are these beautiful, pristine, manicured, no no weeds under the under the canopy, et cetera, et cetera. In my book, as a farmer who turns grapes over to these wonderful winemakers, and then I get to walk in later and taste these wines produced from these vineyards, the more you can, the more you can abuse these vines, still have them live. The more expressive the grapes, the more expressive the wines. And this is classic example of that. I think this is beautiful wine that you taste five, six, seven, eight years down the line. It's just going to be stellar. Um, but that's just me as a farmer talking. I go out at night and uh, insult the vines just there. Make sure they feel appropriately abused. <laughs> Just to stress them out. Tell them they're stupid vines and they shouldn't be taking red wine in the Finger Lakes. <laughs> I'm gonna, so, so, so you go monster-in-law on the vines. I like it. Music <laughs> on his vine. Yeah. He had speakers set up in all the vineyards. Oh my God. And he had classical music playing all the time during the growing season. Well, yeah, like blue in the cellar. We'd be playing. We'd be playing Jack White to these vines. Fucking <laughs> 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 <Okay. laughs> Justin, there was a little side thing while um, Phil was talking. That Phil and I were saying that we 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 feel that 
the first Pinot that we tasted um, from the upper block is the most accessible and drinking beautiful right right out of the gate. Um, and the last one, number four, the Damiani Reserve, is so complex that in three to five years from now, this one is just going to be even more intense than it is right now. So we'd be curious what your opinion is. Um, I I really couldn't agree more. I I am actually a huge fan of, and I'm probably somewhat to my own detriment, of leaving wines to see what they will be like in a few years. Um, which it's it's fun when I get to do these podcasts and the people and whoever I'm doing them with sends two bottles. Um, you know, I've done a couple of, of wineries where they've sent two, so I'll put one away and I'll open one for the interview. Um, with this one, I, I would be interested to see in about four years how the vanilla, how the, the, the milk chocolate kind of come out, you know, where where this Pinot goes. Because right now it's the richest one. It's 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 lush and it's uh, – even looking at the color, I wish I had two glasses here, but even looking at the, cl- the color of the Davis block versus um, – uh, uh, the reserve that I've that I've got um, in my glass, they're they're shades and shades darker, and there's just so much lush, ripe fruit that I think will will improve over time, and will just kind of, you know, you'll get a lot more um, violet, and yeah, I'm I'm I would be psyched to see this in a couple of years. Yeah, this, this particular wine in the vineyard, the the grapes were probably oh almost a quarter raisin by the time we picked them. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, like bricks. Uh, Twenty-four and a half bricks, and that one. Wow. Uh, well, that explains the mouthfeel. Okay. Yeah, and but it's it's interesting to hear you say that because um, the the Damiani vineyard. In general, I mean, we we get um, Merlot and Cab Franc from that vineyard as well, and they're just monsters. They're, you know, big alcohol, big tannin, giant fruit and flavor. Um, But in comparison, and and it translates through to the Pinot Noir, obviously, um, but when you compare this to the Davis Reserve, you're comparing, I don't know, a steel gauntlet to a silk glove. There, yeah. you know what? I always, when I think of the Damiani Vineyard, I think monster, and I think of the Davis Vineyard, and I think elegant and subtle. And I like them both for different reasons, but I don't, I don't personally judge one to be better than the other. I think they're both beautiful for their in their own expressions. And again. What a great reason to leave them separate, so we can see how they are two years, three years, five years down the road. Absolutely. Of course, we are streamlining our portfolio. That was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny. It's an ongoing joke here. We, we keep saying we have too many wines in our portfolio. Let's let's consolidate. Let's you know narrow it down. And we have these production meetings, and we come with that agenda, and Invariably, coming out of it, we've actually added yet another wine. No, 
because of what's going on down at the barn. The best way of plans before harvest all go to shit when the grapes start coming in. <laughs> I mean, pinots, pinots typically don't play well together. Yeah, yeah blend, blending pinots from different vineyards, we just don't don't see it looking out well most times. They, the, the flavors compete. I don't know what wearing a silk glove under your steel gauntlet would taste like, but... <laughs> More often than not, we find we just can't do it. You know, we we try it and we go back and forth and we want to do it and then we don't do it and we end up we we end up leaving them alone because we don't want to we don't want to fuck them up. And it's it's a long it's kind of our mantra down in the winery is good wines made in the vineyard and winemakers fuck it up. So don't. <laughs> I think I'm going to have that tattooed on my arm. Well, that's the end of episode one of Damiani Wine Cellars. Stay tuned for episode two, where we taste through the Rieslings, and then episode three, where Glenn and I taste through the Cab Franc vertical. It was one of my favorites.